Join me in reading God's Word, Matthew. I will begin in verse 5 of chapter 8. When the Lord Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came up to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you, that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it has been done just as you believed it would. And a servant was healed at that moment. This is the word of the Lord. And I want to talk about it today. I want to talk in particular about faith. So first, let's start with the word authority. When Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 had just given uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, it was three chapters, all in red, uninterrupted, pure teaching of Jesus. It is the one section of Scripture that I most want to, to memorize, to know, to live in, to read, um, to embody as much as I can. He, he gave, uh, uh, and it's much like the mountain, he's meant to be read and seen as the new Moses, coming down from the mountain, having given the law to the people of Israel. So he, he goes, and then this word transitions us from the end of chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, into the, this, word, this word. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. This chapter is about how Jesus displays and embodies that very authority. Begins with Jesus touching, healing a leper. So you have in back-to-back -back stories, story number one, somebody who is a social outcast because they are a leper. And what does Jesus do? This is the one thing you don't do with lepers. He touches them. And instead of this illness flowing into Jesus' hand, Jesus' healing flows into the flesh of the one who suffered from leprosy. Then we have the centurion who comments on Jesus' authority. I want to think about, just for a moment, the different ways we mean the word authority. If you're driving and you see flashing blue lights, you look at your speedometer, and you begin to put together the flashing blue lights in your, in your speed, it's because police have the authority to pull us over. And if you don't believe they have the authority, you may also learn that day that they also have the authority to arrest you. So there's one kind of authority that is the kind of authority the government has over us exercised through um, the judicial system. It's also the kind of authority if you have a boss that your boss has. It's an authority to withhold a paycheck, to write up, to, to diminish your hours, that there's an authority that comes from a position of power. 
Then there's a different kind of authority that is derived from wisdom, training, expertise, uh, the, the authority that a doctor has to tell you what's happening inside of you is different than the, the authority the police have to pull you over. But it's still, it's, it's still an authority. If you don't like what your professor is saying about our history, if you don't like what a doctor is saying about what's going on inside of you, usually your problem is not with the authority of that person, but with reality itself. That is the kind of authority well, which kind of authority did the centurion have? It would be the first kind. He was a centurion. He was in charge of the word cent, means hundred. He was in charge of 100 men. He was part of the backbone of both Caesar's force of expansion, his army, to defend and extend the boundaries of Rome. And the Roman centurions were also largely a peacekeeping policing force, that he had both of those roles. It's likely the centurion had experience both in foreign wars as well as domestic infighting, as well as enforcing Roman law and, and really making sure that taxation happened and that the roads were safe. You know, if you can picture Israel, you've got Europe, Asia, this narrow stretch of land between two seas, but right along the Mediterranean, the water, uh, there's, there's water, there's, there's roads, there's, you can travel down this bottleneck into Africa, northern Africa. And Rome had a million people. They could not produce enough food in Europe and where, where they occupied. So the bread and the grain flowed from northern Africa through Palestine and into the rest of the Roman Empire. And there's the centurion, the one ensuring that peace is kept and that the flow of goods continues uh, un, unimpeded. Um, so, to a Roman citizen, centurion is the one who provided you safety, the one who also made sure you paid your taxes, the one who would go after criminals. And, and um, to many of the people Jesus was listening to, they were the ones who were occupying their land, who had defiled their land, and who did not have any reverence or care or love for the God of Israel. Rome had no interest in the culture, the people of Israel, their, their religion, their traditions. The only concern was that they occupied a strip of land that was essential to their stability. As political pundit James Carvel once eloquently put it, it's the economy, stupid, that they were to protect the economy and to ensure that everything was running smoothly. Um, so, given a little bit of that backdrop, what do you think the reaction would have been to the ordinary, everyday people of Israel listening to Jesus' teaching in an occupied land as their diaspora con continued on for another generation? When Jesus saw a centurion and said, I have not seen faith like this person in all of Israel. I imagine there was a gasp. <gasps> Let me hear your best gasp. Yeah, that, that's, that's, pretty, that's really good. And really, uh, you were ready for that one. Thank you. Uh, this melodrama continues. So there was a gasp. There was murmuring. Did Jesus just say this centurion, this uncircumcised Roman soldier, has greater faith than anyone he's seen within Israel? 
this person who has no knowledge of the God of Israel? What is Jesus even talking about? How could Jesus say such a thing about the, the people that were occupying the land that God had given to Israel? Um, in this understand, to understand the impact of this passage and the shock of what Jesus is saying so that we can unpack whatever this faith thing is, it must be pretty significant because the centurion is not the character you would write into the story that demonstrated a great surplus of it. To say this person has faith at all is a shocking statement. To say this person has great faith is a slightly more shocking statement. But to say this person's faith exceeds all of that he's seen in all of Israel demands our attention. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? What did Jesus see? Matthew gives us all the details we need. He said, this is all you need to see to understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the centurion as having great faith. What do you notice about the centurion? Probably the first thing that you notice is that he has some insight into Jesus's authority that surprises Jesus. He says, I'm a man of authority. I'm under somebody. I have people under me. I'm told where to go, I go. I tell others where to go, they go. I understand that, Jesus, I, I've lived among your people for long enough to know my presence in your home or your presence in my home is something that makes you ritually unclean. I don't want to do that. I, you, I understand I have authority. I understand why you might not want to come into my home, so just say the word and it will be done. And the faith that Jesus is noting, and that's what precedes Jesus' statement about his faith, is that observation and that leap. Of, I'm a Roman soldier. I understand how authority works. You're a person of authority. Your authority must work in the same way that mine does. Therefore, just say the word and it, it will be done. See how, and I just want you to notice how he looks at Jesus and what he sees when he looks at Jesus. Because faith is about seeing. Seeing something maybe that others can't see. And he has the ability to see something so obviously true because Jesus does it, exactly the way the centurion asked him to do it, but also that Jesus comments on his faith. So what is faith? And I want to limit us to this passage because I also want to limit me to 10 more minutes. So we're not going to talk about Paul today. We're not going to bring in James. We're just going to talk about Jesus and the centurion, what he saw and what Jesus identified as faith. So here's the outline for the rest of my sermon. Point, question number one, what did Jesus see that gives us an image of faith? Whatever Jesus means by faith, and I'm more interested in what he means than what I, what I think, whatever he means by faith, he saw it in the, in the centurion. What was that? Second, why did he move from there to apocalyptic language? Why did he identify faith and then go to the end of days, the feast prepared with those who are invited to the feast from all over the world, east and west, and those who are cast out. What's the leap there? Why did Jesus go from A to B? And then, of course, the last one, which I'll largely leave to you. What does that mean for us, and how can we live lives marked by faith? So let's begin by talking about the difference between faith and beliefs. And we are so apt to take a belief and label it as faith. I think we need to separate the two before we talk about faith. And to do that, I'm going to talk about my good friend, Paul Tillich. Any uh, 
Here he is on the cover of Time Magazine in 1959. It's a different age when Paul Tillich is on the cover of, of Time Magazine. Um, he, uh, there was no Bravo show called Keeping Up with the Tillichs back then. Um, so uh, different age, different era. Uh, he's a theologian, uh, and he wrote a book called The Dynamics of Faith that I just discovered this week. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little insecure that this, this sermon's going to be like the guy who's in seminary and learned about this new guy and tries to tell everybody, and they're like, what are you, what are you talking about? Who's, it's pronounced Bart and not Barth? No, what, I don't know who you're talking about right now. So um, I'm going to try to, anyway, he wrote a book called The Dynamics of Faith. So let's begin with how he articulates beliefs. There are some, and I'm not going to take a survey right now, so don't raise your hand. There are some in this room who believe that the earth is seven to 9,000 years old, who believe that when the Bible says the world was created in six days, they read that literally. And there are others in this room who believe that the, the first few chapters of Genesis are more poetic, and that the earth is probably more like 13.9 billion years old, as science tells us. Now, what I want to say is not to convince you of one or the other. I want you to, to sit safely and confidently in your beliefs. I just want you to note that they are beliefs. They're not faith. That these are not questions of faith. These are questions of belief. So you can change your beliefs. You can have worship in, among people who, don't, who have slightly different nuanced beliefs. You don't need to resolve all of those things. I was, with many of you, loving Redlands. And there were, how many churches represented there? Dozen, 14, 12 to 14 different churches. I know, actually know all the pastors that were involved in that, personally. And I have different beliefs than them, and they have different beliefs than me. Their churches have different beliefs. They come from different traditions. They, some are reformed. That's a particular set of beliefs. Some are, they're what? Baptist. So they believe very particular things about baptism that's formate, that started there. And, and I'm not going to go through all the different churches. I'm just going to name and say, while there was a mosaic of beliefs, it was all out of one faith, that what we shared was faith. And that is far more important. And what Tillich is saying in here is just, he's not saying beliefs are unimportant. He's not saying don't take your beliefs seriously. He's just saying don't conflate your your beliefs with your faith. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit just because I think it helps bring clarity. How many of you believed at one time that God loved you, but now you believe it? And if you know what I'm talking about, then you understand the difference between a belief and a faith because you see it now. You experience it. You've encountered it. I always knew it was true. My beliefs are intact. They're the same, except now that my faith views these beliefs through the lens of experience, through seeing and hearing about that. Tillich is saying, we in the West have a problem with conflating faith with beliefs. And a lot of times when you go through discipleship, it's really about training you in the right beliefs. A lot of times when you go through confessions, it can conflate these, these beliefs and statements, which are invaluable, important. I spent a lot of time honing and sharpening my beliefs but is of different order, man, I've just rambled so long, my notes went off the air, um, that then are faith. Think about this. How many times did Jesus grieve the lack of faith that he saw? How many times did he say some words and the disciples came to Jesus and said, you know, that really offended some people? Or people are really confused, and I'm going to use their confusion to say, like, 
they're so confused, Jesus, can you just explain it so that they can understand when they really don't understand themselves? And what he would say is what? He would talk about faith. When Peter slipped in the water, what did he say? He said, you of little faith. That in all of the witness of the New Testament, in all of the witness of the Old Testament, talk about faith as that's what Hebrews 11 and 12 talk about faith through the lens of the patriarchs. What it was was ultimately about their faith and their confidence that was oriented in the future. The problem when we equate faith with, with beliefs is we reduce faith to believing the correct things. And what is that privilege? That privilege is the people who are more intelligent, or I don't know, that's not the right word. People, how, what, what word would you use? The people that uh, spend more time thinking about these things, we think, well, they, they have such great faith because they know so much. And Jesus says, hold on, hold on. Faith is available to all equally. It's not a matter of intelligence. I don't give extra faith to extra smart people. I don't give extra faith to extra empathetic people. I don't give extra faith to the people who are more in touch with their emotions. I give faith independent of all those things, yet capturing all those things and bringing them together. So how did Paul Tillich define faith? He defined it as a state of being, which is ultimately concerned. Yeah, that settles it, right? I don't need to explain that anymore. A state of being that is ultimately concerned. It's his way of saying that make the most important thing the most important thing. That don't lose the force between the trees. That are ultimately concerned about what God is up to. That trust, here's the big one. This is the one I thought of at 4 a.m., hoping I'd remember it today. And by golly, I did. Who don't put their faith in their beliefs. Well, let me put it this way. I, I already lost it. See? The, the confidence, the arrogance of me to claim that my memory was accurate. Um, faith, let me, let me put, okay, this is what it is. Faith in God and not faith in holding the right set of beliefs about God. It's not believing about God, it's believing in God, trusting in Jesus. So, did the centurion have the right beliefs? Did, when Jesus talked about a feast and banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, was he like, oh, I know who they are? Or was he like, I wonder which one of these guys here is Abraham? Which one's Isaac and Joseph? Because it wasn't about him having the right beliefs. Jesus wasn't surprised by his beliefs. He was surprised by his faith. Think about how the centurion saw the world. This is, this is, this is how hopefully I can illustrate faith. When centurion saw the world, he saw, as he described to Jesus, a hierarchy. At the top is Caesar, at the bottom is the leper you just healed, but he just went up a notch because you healed him. But he has this very strict hierarchy. I'm under some people, other people under me. I pass along things given to me to others, send them to do this and that. But something broke through the way he viewed the world. There was somebody at the bottom socially, his servant, that got really sick. And what he found in the sickness of his servant was... I believe that this servant is interchangeable, that he, it is primarily a thing more than it is a person. This is, uh, a, fulfills a particular function in my life, and while I may grieve and leave uh, when he leaves, it's somebody that's ultimately replaceable. He began to, through the love for the servant, to be concerned. Then, in that concern, in that love, in that wanting healing, recognized 
my authority hits a really hard wall when it comes to what I want most, which is the healing of this child. Caesar has authority. He does not have the authority to make the sick well again. Then he sees Jesus. The portal would allow, would, would allow the centurion to see Jesus in the way that he did was his love for somebody that made no, made no sense for him in his social location. But he began to see this person that bore the image of God and then drove him in coming to Jesus and putting himself at Jesus' mercy in equating Jesus as somebody that has the kind of authority he has. He is seeing life and world in a completely different way that made absolutely no sense to anyone in Rome to say, you have the authority. I'm putting myself in need for you. I love this servant over here. His soldiers would be like, what happened to him? Why is he talking like that? Why is he going to this Jewish peasant to, talk, to ask for healing and, and humble himself and talk about his authority? This makes no sense. It's because the centurion saw a world where servants deserve love and Jesus can help. And that's all Jesus needed to say was that is faith. That Trent, that defies your beliefs, that goes in opposition to the things you believe about the world to come to me. And then to say, you don't need to come to my house. I respect the, the uncleanliness of my home. I'm not worthy for you to do that. And the authority, Jesus says, he's shocked. I've never seen faith like this. And the murmurs go out and, and he's like, uh, he, he backs up what he says by healing him. And then he goes and talks about the great reversal, probably to the murmurers, saying, a time is coming Get used to it. People in the East and the West, they're all going to be at this banquet. And those who hang to the world as it is will find themselves outside of the banquet, weeping, gnashing teeth. For all who seek the kingdom of heaven and God will get the, all the world. But those who seek the benefits of this world um, will find themselves, in the end, in the great reversal, locked out. Only those who have an ultimate concern that see through this world, to see to the deeper realities and deeper truths, um, find their way to that feast. The kingdom is available to anyone. You, there's a reason why we talk about a childlike faith. What is a childlike faith? It, it doesn't privilege intelligence, our Erudite ways of using words that are too big than necessary. See what I did there? I use a word that's too big than necessary. Keep going, John. You're almost there. So, kingdom of a heaven is available to anyone, and it's about the way Jesus talked about it, eyes to see, ears to hear. The ability to see in ways that put a leper and a centurion on the same playing field to Jesus that he looks through all the social locations, all the ways that we compartmentalize people into their boxes and says, faith, faith, healing, healing. He, those who have eyes, C.S. Lewis calls these thin spaces, these areas where you can see the reality as it is, but behind it, you can begin to sense God at work. To use his language again, Aslan on the move. He's on the move again. He's moving. I can see it. I can have hints of it. Paul says it's like seeing dimly in a mirror. We see hints of it. We see pieces of it. Then what we begin to see in, in, as shadows, we'll see as reality. And the shadows we live in now will dis, all but disappear. That there's a time coming that Jesus talks about as this great reversal. Jesus once thanked that God, thank you, Father, that you've hidden the kingdom from the wise and the learned. 
that those who benefit so much from the world are, bl- are blinded by those benefits. But you let in the children, the kids, the meek, the humble in heart. Jesus talked about this as having eyes to see and ears to hear God's kingdom. Not about knowing, even though that is so important, but seeing is what Jesus privileges. Seeing with our eyes and hearing with our ears. So what do we do to live by faith? That, finally, is at least the right question. That's how do we transcend beliefs into the land of faith so that the cart can be pulled behind the horse, the horse of our faith, the cart of our beliefs, that it's our faith that can lead, even ways that defy our understanding. The kingdom of heaven is available to all who ask, seek, knock. That is the promise of Jesus. All who look for something of great value beyond this world, find it. All who knock on the doors of the kingdom of heaven, find them opened unto them. And all who look, ultimately find the treasure that you're seeking. All I can say is it's found at the table as we come together. That Jesus has given us his kingdom. He has given us the bread, the cup, and poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And what I invite you to do this morning is to not just know that your sins are forgiven, but to see that they are. To not just know the love of God, but to experience that love. For that is the essence of faith. Don't just know they're forgiven. See at the table that they are. And as you return to your seats, with your faith strengthened for all that you face, may God give you eyes to see the kingdom all around you and the ears to hear his voice calling your name. Let's come to the table together. Father, deepen our faith. Move what we know to be true into what we know to be true because we've tasted and we've seen and we've heard of the goodness of God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you mark faith as the highest value for faith is something any of us can have in equal measure. May we see the kingdom through the eyes of faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Come to the table.